Welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks for joining me again. We have another series of interviews coming your way this winter and spring as the snow falls a little too much in the Seattle area this time of year. For many reasons, humans have developed ways of thinking that deny animals' emotions. This time we're going to talk about animals, their emotional intelligence, and their consciousness. We have viewed animals as bundles of rigid instincts. Science has, anyways. Automatons acting only on stimulus and response. But that's changing. Darwin would be glad. You know, Darwin wrote about animals in the 19th century. But science, and truly a large part of humanity, didn't want to hear about it. That book is not one of the books people talk about when they talk about Darwin. That's an emotional response, to be sure. Based in part on our need, maybe, to use animals for our own purposes, as food harnessed into efficient factories, as labor lashed machines, as test subjects, for helping us understand ourselves. So any crack in the armor of our determination to deny other living creatures' emotions similar to our own would only make our efforts more difficult. Because humans, just like animals, as the current science reveals, have an innate sense of fairness. And maybe sometimes we look too hard, we'll realize that we're not being fair to animals. Franz Dewall is a Dutch-born primatologist, ethologist. He's professor of primate behavior and psychology at Emory University in Atlanta. He does much of his science at America's oldest and largest primate center, the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Georgia. He is director of the Living Links Center at Yerkes, specializing in behavioral studies of monkeys, apes, mostly on social behavior and intelligence, social reciprocity, conflict resolution in primates, all to better understand human evolution as well as animal evolution. He's the author of many books, a number of scientific papers, all taking a look at what animals do reveal about their intelligence and their emotion. Dr. DeWall is coming to Town Hall March 19th in Seattle, 2019 at Seattle First Baptist Church on First Hill. He's going to talk about his latest book, Mama's Last Hug, Animal and Human Emotions. This book and much of DeWall's work scientifically explores the emotional life of animals. Hello, Franz DeWall. I appreciate you talking to me. I have a lot of questions about the book, but let me let me start with something different. You know, I, I also had another interview uh, today with somebody who's coming to Town Hall who's a, as a novelist. And, a, uh-huh. and a, a scholar. She writes a good deal in um, in psychiatry journals and neurobiology journals. Her name is Siri Hustvet. And, uh-huh. and um, I asked her, and she writes about memory. She writes about story. She writes about narrative. And and I mentioned that I was talking to you, and she said, oh, and I, I asked her if she thought there was something uh, uh, that links that links these ideas. And, and And for her, it was the same thing I was thinking, which is that um, we are storytellers to ourselves as well as to others. <laughs> and we, you know, we shape our reality through the stories we tell ourselves. Well, that's an interesting uh, thing because um, I, I have a sort of two-track career. One is writing these popular books, which is full of stories. And the other is my scientific work, which is full of statistics and graphs and tables, you know, um, where we, we move away from the story and we try to extract the data from it. And people are really not 
that um, convinced by uh, by data. So so the scientists, of course, they like to see a statistical test to demonstrate that males do more of this and females do more of that. Uh, we are very convinced by that, but the, the general public wants to hear stories. And um, I'm, I'm always sort of balancing act in my book because on the one hand, I want to give people a, a flavor of the science that is behind things like the neuroscience or the hormones or whatever the science is. But on the other hand, I do want to tell them stories because I know I lose them very quickly if, if I'm just going to talk about data. That's the most boring thing ever in their mind, and they don't want to listen to that. So, yes, uh, storytelling is a big part of getting a message across to people. Of, of course, also the, that how, what question is asked inform the data. You talk about that a lot just in terms of what scientists in the past have asked about animals and what they could be asking. So there is that, that, that there's a self-fulfilling story in that sense. But we won't ask this about animals because they can't do this. We have assumptions that we make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the longest time, previous century, we had such minimalist assumptions about animals. Animals either had instincts, that was the, the biologists, like myself, I'm from that school, either they have instincts or they have very simple associative learning and as soon as you came with something else and you say, well, maybe they can solve problems, so they can co they have cognition or they have emotions and they may even feel these emotions. As soon as you said that, uh, people would start laughing at you as if you were crazy. And as a result, they also would never do studies or design experiments to test emotional reactions or to test complex cognition because in their mind it couldn't exist. So why would you test for it, you know? And, and, and at the same time, these these uh, thing these questions that scientists ask themselves do come around, right? You talk about Darwin and the book that he wrote about emotions. Um, we could say the same thing about Adam Smith. I think you mentioned Adam Smith in the book, uh -huh. or uh, von Humboldt, who also had these ideas about nature, which today look prescient. Yeah, yeah. So Darwin is an interesting case because he he was free to talk about emotions. At that time, everyone was happy with that. And so he, he explained the facial expressions of primates and the facial expressions of humans. And they said they're very similar. And he would argue that since we have similar expressions and the similar circumstances, you have to assume that the emotions are the same too. And that was all fine. But that book by Darwin, uh, The Expression of the Emotions, it's called, that is the only book by Darwin that disappeared from view for a whole century it's the only book that, that went out of print and no one looked at it anymore until recently, until the psychologists like Ekman and so on started looking at facial expressions again. And then we dug up that book, but, but it was forgotten because it, it was a taboo topic for a long time and now it's coming back finally. And, and so in my book, I tried to bring back that same topic uh, that Darwin already had. Well, it didn't fit the narrative of as science was unfolding in the in the eighteen. Hundreds in the 1900s, did it? No, we had to be objective. We had to be very objective, and objective meant that you were distant. You didn't give your animals names, for example. That would be getting too close to them, uh, and and you would not um, test them under natural circumstances, or you would you would take a rat out of its box and move to another room where you had to set up for your experiment. So that rat is, of course, at that point, totally nervous because uh, it's removed from its familiar environment. You're going to test 
the animal under suboptimal circumstances, I would say. And then you find that, yes, they press the lever to get their rewards and stuff like that. It's, it's extremely boring science, actually, but that we had the previous century. And now, finally, we have all these young students of animal behavior who are doing experiments on cognition, and, and they have given up on even reacting to the behaviorists who keep pestering them with their theories. And, and I think many of us have given up and said, well, uh, you keep your theories to yourself. We, we have our own agenda now. So how did you, um, personally, how did you uh, uh, manage to keep the work going when you would go to these conferences and people would laugh? I think you recounted times when they laughed at some of your, some of your papers, but other times where they would just discount them. What, what was it in you that kept you, um, you know, strong? Well, I think um, I know my animals. So, um, and I'm very close to, to the animals I work with. So if I go to a conference, and, and so in the 1990s, for example, I was the first one to talk about empathy and sympathy in animals. And we, and we had a lot of good evidence, I think, for it already at the time. And, and that has only grown over the years. And I would talk about empathy. And yes, people would laugh. They would, this was the silliest idea that animals could have empathy, even though anyone who has a dog, I think, knows that animals have some degree of empathy. But they thought it was the silliest idea. And for me, since I, I'm very close to my animals and I see them every day and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm basically primarily an observer, uh, for me, this was so obvious that they had it that, that I felt immune to criticism by people who work with, on pigeons or rats. You know, the typical behaviorists, they don't work on primates and they work on small-brained animals. And, and I think even rats are totally underestimated. Rats have probably lots of empathy too. But anyway, they... I was immune, I felt, to that kind of criticism because what were they talking about? They were not talking about the animals I know firsthand. They were talking about some abstract concept that they had in their head. And so for me, that was never an issue. And, and in addition, I should say that the primatologists never objected much to it. It was the people outside of primatology, people who, who were in the labs with their, uh, their the animals that they had, but it was very rare for me to encounter a colleague who studies primates to say, no, that's an impossibility. Uh, also, when my book Chimpanzee Politics came out, which, which at the time was quite provocative, it was not the primatologist who would object to it because they had seen baboons do things and chimps do things. They, they, they knew what was going on. And so it was the outsiders who had a preconceived opinion about animals who were objecting to it. By the way, uh, just because you mentioned rats uh, and, you know, you talk about data, uh, what was the experiment that was done with the uh, laboratory rats that uh, showed their empathy? They, they were put in a, a companion, was put in a glass container? Yeah, this was done at the University of Chicago, where they would put two rats in a, in a room, a small room, uh, and one of them would be locked up in a glass container, uh, and the other rat would learn to open the container. Uh, reacting to the distress of the trapped rat, because the, the, maybe vocalizations, maybe smell, I don't know what the distress signals were, but they would respond to it. And they would be highly motivated because they compared, for example, with their reaction to uh, chocolate. If you put chocolate pieces in a glass container, 
uh, they would actually often first liberate the other rat before they would get to the chocolate. They were highly motivated to, to liberate that uh, companion for them. And so that kind of experiments have now been done. And, and we also know that if you give these rats Prozac so that this, they don't respond to distress of others so much anymore, they, um, they don't do it anymore. So we know it's an emotionally mediated response. Uh, and, and that kind of experiments, there's now all sorts of studies. We, we here at Emory, we did a study of empathy in voles, where for the first time we could do neuroscience because I, I work with elephants and primates and we, I never do neuroscience on them. But um, in the voles, we did that. And we found that oxytocin is involved in the empathy response and that it is, you can measure it physiologically. And our conclusion was that the empathy reaction of rodents is probably very similar to the empathy reaction in humans, probably very similar mechanisms. You could do the experiments because you could check their oxytocin levels by what, by taking their blood or by cutting their brains out? Yeah, yeah. So the, with, with rodents, we do things that we would not do with primates or certainly not with elephants. So, yeah, uh, I never did neuroscience on the primates because all my studies are non-invasive. Tell me, as you keep doing work and you find that even voles have these uh, these uh, reactions, does you, do you get more trepidatious about doing any kind of invasive work? I've never done invasive studies, and so the the, the vole study was was done in another lab, and that's that's a lab that regularly does these neuroscience studies on rodents. But um, the chimpanzees, as you may know are not being used for this, for any kind of invasive studies yes, anymore yes. now. The, the chimpanzees, um, that's like a couple of years ago, NIH decided uh, biomedical studies on chimps are out. We're not doing that anymore. And there's maybe still a few groups who do it because it's not forbidden to do it, but there's just not, no funding anymore for it. You're also finding, yeah. aren't you, much more information and uh, much more uh, data that's useful by, by intelligent observation, aren't you? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the things that we uh, we want to know about animals, we don't need to go into the brain and take the brain out or take take parts of the brain out. But I don't think we need that. And hopefully there will come a day where we can do non-invasive neuroscience on them, like the way we do with humans. You know, you humans you put in a brain scanner, uh, and and they come out alive, <laughs> and uh, and we do the neuroscience on them. And I think. We're going to reach that point one day with other species. Um, we have someone here at Emory who's trying to train dogs to sit still in the, um, in the brain scanner. And as soon as you get an animal that you can tell to sit still, uh, even if it's just for three minutes, uh, you can do these, these non-invasive methods on them. I'd like to see that kind of training training the dog to be perfectly still for three well, minutes. Well, actually, they, they have a holder in which the, the dog needs to put his head, and that holder is given to people at home. So at home, you train your dog. If he puts his head in that holder, uh, a chin rest, basically, if he puts his head in there, he gets a reward. And then you train him up, train him up, and then you bring him to the scanner where you put the same chin rest in the scanner, and the dog has learned to put his head in there and hopefully sits still, and, and hopefully doesn't wag his tail too much uh, when he, he knows that there's rewards coming and stuff like that. You, you, you make a distinction throughout Mama's Last Hug about feelings and emotions and how we, can, how we look at one or the other, or can't look at the other, but how we could extrapolate. What, what define that, those differences and how we use them? As science well, the, is using. The word feeling relates to a private experience. And so 
I can tell you my feelings and you may believe them <laughs> because I'm just telling you, you cannot feel my feelings and you, you can see my emotions on my face or in my behavior, but you cannot see my feelings necessarily. So feelings are to be kept separate because feelings, even your feelings, if you say uh, you went to a funeral and you felt sad, I don't know exactly if your sadness is the same as my sadness. So, so I'm willing to believe you and I have a, some sort of vague understanding of what you felt, but feelings are much less accessible and that's between humans. Now with animals, I have no access to their feelings. I, I can guess at their feelings, but uh, I can measure their emotions though, because emotions are expressed in the body. Emotions live somewhere between the mind and the body. They, they are always expressed in the body, in behavior, in expressions, in your tone of voice, in your blood pressure, in your temperature, all sorts of things. Uh, the emotions are measurable. And so that's why I say in the book that, yes, we can study the emotions in animals. Clearly, the, it's a, it can be an objective science. But what, in terms of the feelings, we have a problem. But I see that same problem with human emotions. So people who study human emotions, they believe everything people tell them, but I don't believe everything that people tell us. Uh, I'm here in the psychology department and, and we all rely on these questionnaire methods where we ask people to fill in this or that, but I don't trust people as much as uh, the psychologists do. I think people lie a lot. And, and so in that sense, I'm, I'm happy to work with animals where I have to just rely on the observations. They don't lie as much. No, they, they, instead of asking them, how often do you have sex a week? I just watch how often they have sex a week, which I think is more reliable information. <laughs> well, all right. So in terms of emotions and feelings, who, who's mama and why is her last hug important? Well, mama was the head female of the Arnhem Zoo colony, which is the largest colony of chimps in, in a zoo in the world. And she was the head for 40 years, So, and, and I've known her for 40 years. So she's a very important figure. She was not higher ranking than the males, because in chimpanzees the males are always dominant, uh, because they're physically much stronger and they're very cooperative, the males. But she was politically very influential, and I, I've always considered in terms of the power structure of that colony, mama and the, old, the, and the oldest male, mama the oldest female, those two uh, were, were really the, the power brokers in that whole colony. So Mama was a very important figure, and uh, everyone listened to her, so to speak, if, if she had an opinion about something. For example, if, she, if males were vying for the top rank in the colony and Mama would put her weight behind one of the males, that would almost guarantee that he would become the alpha male. So that, that's how important she was. And she was also an ex excellent mediator who try to keep the peace in the group. And so I've known her uh, all these years and uh, my professor, Jan van Hoof in the Netherlands, he also knew her all that time. And when she was dying the last uh, couple of weeks, I think it was two weeks before her death, he decided to go into her night cage and, and say goodbye to her, which is exceptional because we never, if you're of your right mind, you will never go into a cage with an adult chimpanzee because that's taking your life in your own hands, basically. But Mama was so far gone. She was so um, sick and, and curled up in her nest that he decided to do that. And, and this was filmed, this encounter. And you can find it on the Internet. 
and uh, I think uh, 200 million people looked at it. People were extremely moved. And for me, the important part was how surprised people were about the human-like response of Mama. So, so she embraces Jan, she, she smiles at him, she pats his, his, his shoulders and his neck. And perfectly normal chimpanzee behavior, in my opinion. But people were shocked how human-like it looked. And so that's why I have taken this as the title of the book. I thought I need to explain to people that chimpanzees are are human-like. They, their emotions are very human-like. Their expressions are. Uh, the context always is very human-like. And, and so I need to explain that this is not just some sort of superficial similarity. This is because we are basically, we are also apes. We're basically the same in, in, in terms of emotions. And so that's why I took that as a title. You write that um, one thing people need to remember and consider is that the, the ape is as much a product of evolution over the last five million years as, as humans are. That we, the, the apes that we live with contemporaneously have also gone through evolution. Yeah, there is this sort of misunderstanding that we are the most evolved species and that other animals stopped evolving. That's a very strange idea. Are we more evolved than an octopus? Are we more evolved than a crow or a raven? I, I don't know. Um, and why would you assume that other species stopped evolving? Evolution is a continuous process. And so uh, we descend from a common ancestor with chimps and bonobos that lived six million years ago, or five or six. And um, since that time, we have changed. Obviously, we have changed. But chimps and bonobos have changed too. And so if we now look at a chimpanzee, we're not looking at our past. We're not looking at our ancestor. We're looking at, at a fellow traveler in evolution uh, who has maybe changed even more than us. Uh, I think, for example, the genetic diversity of chimpanzees is much greater than in our species. And so um, maybe there has been more evolution going on in their lineage. I don't know if, if that's the way to say it. But certainly you don't want to look at a chimpanzee or a bonobo uh, as some sort of ancestral uh, species because they, they they come from the same ancestor. So they're, they're more brothers and sisters than that they are uh, our parents, so to speak. Well, and you, and you talk about how emotions are uh, embedded in our uh, mammalian brain are, are, and therefore in, in reptilian brains. I mean, th these, these mechanisms go back in time, and however sophisticated yeah. they are, they, they have a basis in biology. Is that, is that notion being, uh, becoming more accepted in mo modern science? Yeah, I think we, we're seeing more and more that um, all life forms are basically the same, based on the same principles, plants and animals. And there's a lot of uh, work now on, on plants and, and how they perceive the world and how they react to the world. Uh, I'm not sure that plants have experiences the way we have feelings, for example. As, for animals, I'm willing to assume that is that they, they don't just show, show emotions, but they also feel emotions. For plants, I don't know, but all forms of life are based on the same principles. And so uh, you can do a study of depression in fish, for example, or self-recognition in fish, which recently was a study that came out, 
or learning in bumblebees who can learn certain things or uh, insects. The octopus is another example. Um, so, so it's not just mammals. For mammals, of course, I assume essential similarities across the board from, from rats and elephants to humans and chimpanzees. But even if you go beyond them, uh, you see many of the same sort of processes. I've often wondered if that increasing, um, all the science that's coming out and increasing recognition in some ways may um, help people preserve the creatures that are disappearing across the planet. But I guess that that's a uh, that asks people to have a kind of empathy across species that doesn't always show up, huh? Well, um, the, the story of, of humans is, of course, that we are multiplying. If if there were if there were fewer humans in the world, yes, we could we could probably preserve a lot of the other habitats and other species. But we are occupying so much land, and we need so much food. Uh, that has become really a, a struggle. Um, the, the, my only hope is that, of course, the, the population growth of humans is going to slow down, and at some point it may even decline. So uh, my only hope is that at some point it stops and that we can preserve the rest of what remains, you know. That must be hard. I mean, it's hard for me as just an individual. must be harder even for somebody who spends so much time working with those other creatures. Yeah, the thing is that that the, the apes are really under pressure. Uh, I don't know if you've read the report on the orangutans in Borneo. A hundred thousand orangutans disappeared in the last twenty years. Mm. That's about half the population of all the orangutans on Borneo, which is a very large island in Indonesia. So, uh, if a hundred thousand apes disappear, uh, that means there's enormous pressure. Uh, so it, it's partly because they're cutting down the forests and putting palm oil in. It's also partly because they shoot orangutans on site if they come out of the forest to steal food from the farmers. And so, um, yeah, it's a desperate situation for many of the apes at the moment. And so when people say such things like, uh, would they still evolve? Could they become as intelligent as us? And say, people still want to ask these questions i'm i'm just going to be happy if they survive i don't want to even think about their evolution i'm going to be happy if if we have wild apes surviving in into the next century one of the uh yeah one of the chapters in your book is about uh, you, i know you've written about it before but in again in this book will to power and that you end the chapter by by saying emotions can be bad can be good bad and ugly which is as true for animals as it is for us. We, um, I mean, what we're learning about ourselves and about animals is, is that these things flow through us and that they are hard to contain. Mm -hmm. How do we, uh, well, you know, it's just back to the question of, you know, trying to convince farmers not to shoot the orangs. They, they have their own uh, short-term interests at stake. It seems yeah, yeah. very difficult. Yeah, the reason I said that that emotions can be ugly is we have a tendency when we write about animal emotions to take the positive ones because, of course, we want to impress on people that animals are worth of our concern. And and so the best way to convince them is to show that, that animal moms, they love their kids or they, they animals can grieve or they help each other. They can be altruistic. That's all very beautiful and it's all true, I think. Um, 
but animals also kill each other and <laughs> animals are not always nice to each other. Uh, just as humans are not always nice to each other. And, and I felt it needed to be emphasized that that we also have these other emotions, just like, like we do uh, in, in chimpanzees and in all sorts of species. And so, yes, for example, there's the, the, the tendency of males to try to become the dominant male, which is a very strong tendency. And uh, that may lead to mayhem. That may, that may lead to one male killing another male or uh, a male attacking females. And all these things happen. Uh, there's infanticide going on sometimes. So I, f I felt in the book needed to be at least one chapter explaining that, that we also have other ways of expressing emotions. Well, the next chapter is about uh, f emotional intelligence. It's about free will. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that just the fact that you decided again to grapple with the concept of free will is, uh, is brave of you. <laughs> because as you write, I mean, how do we even um, define it? How do you define it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we humans have a free will, but it is true that you meet people who are convinced that we have a free will, and at the same time, they're convinced that animals don't. And that is something that bothers me. So if you assume that humans have free will, on what is that based? It's usually based on the fact that we can push our emotions aside. So I may have a preference emotionally for solution X, um, but I decide rationally, no, I'm not going to do X, I'm going to do Y. And that's a rational decision based on free will. And so then the question becomes, can animal push their emotions aside? Can animal control their emotions? Can you do uh, a test like the marshmallow test with animals? The marshmallow test measure, measures how kids, kids respond to temptations. Um, and so these tests have actually been done on animals, and animals pass these tests. Animals can control their emotions, and they can push their temptations aside. And so my argument is that if that's the case, then we need to, if, if you assume free will in humans, if you're willing to do that, you need to assume free will in animals just as well. Well, what was one of the experiments you write about in terms of uh, fairness and um, sharing of uh, food versus uh, being overly rewarded, one, one pair or another being overly rewarded for food and how animals decide uh, to uh, deal with that? Well, the fairness studies, we started doing that with capuchin monkeys when we discovered by accident that they were watching very closely what others were getting for a, for a task. So you, you normally you assume you, you reward a monkey for a certain task uh, and that's all he cares about is how much do I get and how, how hard do I have to work for it? And we were noticing that these monkeys were paying attention to what somebody else was getting. And so uh, together with Sarah Brosnan, I started to experiment on this. And, and we, we did these tests where we give them a very simple task. And uh, sometimes both of them get a, a piece of cucumber for it. Uh, and, and that's always fine. Sometimes both of them get a grape. That's even better because grapes are far better than cucumber. But sometimes we would give one monkey pieces of cucumber and the other one we would give pieces of grape. And that's where the differences started and where the, the monkey who got cucumber started to object to the test um, because the other one was getting something much better. And so we started testing this out, the sense of fairness in monkeys, and then we started, tested it out in chimpanzees. And basically now the chimps go much further because the chimps will also reject good rewards if the other one doesn't get a good one. So the chimps go very closely to the human sense of fairness. And if you now ask me, is the sense of fairness 
uh, of humans unique? I, I would say no. I, I think it's very similar to what the chimps do. We, we tested chimps and children in the same way, for example, and we found very similar outcomes. Well, part of what you're looking, you've looked at is that chimps may make a determination based on how the unit, their family, their, their tribe, may react later to something they do in the present. That's, that mm -hmm. gives a sense of, of animals also having a, t a, t a sense of themselves in time. That's a very sophisticated, seems like a very sophisticated concept. Yeah, I think, I think animals have an excellent sense of time and, and looking forward and looking backward. We now have all these studies on what is called time travel. And, and the most interesting story on that was an experiment that was done with bonobos in, in some laboratory where one bonobo female, she would get wonderful rewards for the task that she was doing. She would get raisins and milk and chocolate and all sorts of wonderful stuff. Um, but at some point she refused to, to do her task because there were other bonobos a little bit distant uh, of her group who were watching her and were uh, from a distance they were watching what she was doing. And she kept waving with her hand in their direction uh, to the experimenter, waving her, her hand in the direction of the others. And only when the experimenter fed the others a few of these goodies uh, was, she, was she willing to continue on the task. And so it was really like she was saying, um, you need to feed these, these others also. And, and our speculation was that maybe this was because she was concerned if she if she is reunited with these others, because, of course, at some point she would go back to them. Uh, they would be very displeased with her if she had been eating all that good stuff. And so uh, they seem to understand that. And, and I think the human sense of fairness is related to that also to understand that it disturbs the relationships. If you take too much, it's, it's a bad thing for your relationships. And she was realizing that. And I think that's also where the human sense of fairness comes from. That's an amazing concept, though, that the animals and humans, too, for that matter, have a sense of this other thing, not in them, not in me, but in our interaction and what is between us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think many of these social emotions that we have and that we have always claimed for ourselves, you can find in other species. We have this whole theory in psychology that we have only six basic emotions. Uh, that's based on facial expression research because we have six basic facial expressions for certain emotions. And so anger and fear and and happiness, all these all these things are called basic emotions because we have faces for them. And all the other emotions that we have, maybe a hundred of them, all the others, they are secondary, meaning that they are cultural inventions that we came up with and uh, that are different from what animals have. And I, I think that's a silly idea. I think um, all the other emotions like jealousy and love and hope and, and pride, all these other emotions that we call secondary are also present in other species. And, and so that's why I argue in the book is that emotions are like organs. That there's not a single organ in my body that you don't find in the body of a rat. Uh, all the organs are preserved across species because we all need lungs and a heart and liver and a spleen. We, all, we need all these things. And, and I think for the emotions, it's the same thing, is that I don't have necessarily emotions that are different from those of a rat, even though they may some of them may be more sophisticated or more developed or used under more circumstances, but they're not fundamentally different. And it also begs the question of whether, in some ways, some animals have more sophisticated 
emotions than humans. Well, I've heard that argument, for example, for cetaceans. So like killer whales and dolphins, they may have more affiliative emotions in the sense of emotions that that relate to bonding and connection. Um, and, and this is based on, on brain research on them. It's a possibility. I don't know. You've done this work how many years now? Oh, I've worked for at least 40 years on the primates. Uh, I started in the Netherlands with studies of politics in the chimpanzees, and then I moved to the U.S. and, and I worked for 10 years on macaques mostly, uh, which are monkeys, and then uh, I started working on bonobos also in that time. And then I moved here to Emory University in Atlanta, where I, I became more experimental. I started to do experiments. So not just watching my animals, even though they always lived in groups and I always watched their behavior also, but also calling them out into a room and testing them on a computer or do some experiment to see if they want to share food and things like that. And so that's the work that I did um, here at Emory University. Do you ever want to retire? I am retiring, but but I keep writing and lecturing. But um, as far as my research is concerned, I don't have a big research team anymore as I used to have. Just because you you're slowing down. Yeah, I'm I'm slowing down um, and and doing other things. Ah, uh, uh, things that are as much fun. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I, I, I for example, I, I like writing books. I've always liked that, and so now I have more time to do that. I see. I see. Do you have um, do you have animals at home? Do you have dogs or cats or birds or rats? We've we've always had cats at home. Um, all my life, we've had cats, multiple cats, and and I love the cats. Uh, but we now face them out. We we wait till the the last one died, and because we want to travel a bit more, like we we often go to Europe, for example, and so. Uh, I don't want to have um, the animals at home anymore, even though later maybe we will have them. And, and, and I have a lot of fish. I have two enormous fish tanks. I've actually more than two tanks. Uh, I've never lived without fish. Since I was, let's say, six years old, I've had fish, and I still have fish. And uh, I'm a big lover of fish, and um, I have uh, tropical fish tanks. As a, as a scientist who studies um, um emotions and feelings and and uh and cognition what's the attraction to fish well fish have all of that so so people don't see that because normally what you see is is a school of fish let's say a thousand of them moving together well um that's not the fish that i have fish fish can live in pairs they can be parents they can care for their young they defend the territory they sometimes know each other individually and they have a little rank order among themselves. Fish, fish are far more interesting than people think. Um, and, and we now have all these studies showing that fish feel pain. At least they, they remember places where they have encountered pain, let's say it that way. So we have all that evidence. And, and um, I think fish are a very interesting group of animals. I can't remember the fish uh, that I had right now. It's escaping me, but it uh, in our big tank, it was the one who... It was it had a little electric discharge. It was pretty big. It was already about seven eight inches by the time um, it passed away. It lived a oh. long time, but it uh, it seemed to uh, recognize our approach. Definitely recognized when food was going to oh, be yeah, dropping in from the top. Of course, of course. I have a, a place in in one of my tanks. I have 
put a place behind glass because I have some fish who eat my plants too much, and so I want to protect the plants. And they can they can go to that place through a particular hole, uh, and they're not allowed to to go in there. Uh, and so each time I approach that tank, the fish who illegally have entered my planted part of the tank, they squeeze out very quickly because they know I don't want them there. So yeah, so they have the same responses. They they recognize individuals. Uh, they know the time of feeding uh, and so on. Yeah, I think fish fish can learn very well. And in terms of the the uh, the chimps that you still work with, uh, uh, when you work with them, do you have particular friends? Yeah, there's always chimps who are my friends and and who are happy to see me and and respond to me and show their kids to me. And there's always chimps who uh, I have a close relationship with. There's other chimps who are much more aloof and they couldn't care less that that I come because I'm I'm not. Uh, you know, chimps have friends that the the people who give them food, and they have enemies which are, let's say, the vets who sometimes dart them uh, or look at them when they're sick. Uh, and uh, I'm sort of neutral in the sense that I don't feed them and I don't treat them uh, when they're sick. So so I am I'm basically a neutral pr- person. But there are chimps who clearly see me as a friend and recognize me. Yeah. They show their ch- their children to you. Yeah, chimpanzees, uh, when they have a new baby, they may want to show it to you. Yeah, Really? Just like hold it out the way a parent, a human parent would hold out their little child? Well, uh, the most interesting one was a female named Lolita who had a baby and she, um, she wanted to show it to me. And she crossed her arms because the baby was clinging to her. She crossed her arms to take the two little hands so that when she moved it away from her belly, she could unfold it in the sense that um, the, the, the face of the baby was facing me. Uh, so she, had, she, she, she made the movement. Um, she clearly understood that I wanted to see the face, not just the back of the baby. Uh, so yeah, they, they take your perspective. And chimps, chimps have that capacity. Um, we, and we know that now from research is that they have theory of mind and, and all of that. So uh, yeah, they do that. So we've been talking about Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions, and what they tell us about ourselves. But your last book, uh, popular book, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Are we? Uh, I'm an optimist. I think we can figure most of these things out if we are open-minded enough. The, the trick is to to look at the animal from the animals, at the world from the animal's perspective. So, so to do tests that are appropriate to the animals. And, and this, is, this is a big challenge. Uh, so for example, when people tested the tool use capacities of elephants, they would give them tool tasks that were perfectly fine for a monkey or a human, but not for elephants. And so the, the tool task was they would put food outside of their cage and give them a stick and see if they wanted to use the stick to bring it inside. And the, chim- and, and the elephants did not do that. Uh, and it's only much later that they developed a test where the elephants could reach food that was hung very high, but they would have to move a box underneath the food so that they could stand on the box. And that's what they did. So they were perfectly capable of using tools, but they were not willing to pick up a stick with their trunk to bring the food uh, closer to them. And and now we think it is because the, the trunk is also a smelling organ. And if you pick up a stick with it, you, you close off the smelling organ, which is not 
very good in, uh, if you want to reach food. If you want to reach food, you want you want to smell it before you touch it. And so the the thinking is that for the elephant, the trunk is not like a hand. And we were translating basically our body to the elephant's body by doing that, and and we were wrong. So now we know that the elephant is very well capable of using tools, but you have to give them the right circumstances. And this is true for all the tests that we do on animals. We have to create the right circumstances where they can show their abilities. We have to be smart enough to understand our own empathy and their empathy. Yeah, yeah. Franz DeWall, speaking 7 p.m., March 19th, Seattle First Baptist Church on First Hill. It's part of Seattle's Town Hall Science Series. For an excerpt of this interview with Franz DeWall, you can check out my other podcast that's produced in conjunction with Town Hall, hosted by Ginny Palmer. That podcast is called In the Moment, and like this one, you can download it wherever you find your podcasts. Next time, a conversation with Siri Hustvet the novelist, poet, and scholar on neurobiology and psychiatry. Her novel, Memories of the Future, is the story of a young writer and her older self. The book explores issues of memory, time, gender, sanity, much more. It's a serious topic, but honestly, it was an interview that was full of laughter. I hope you'll come back and listen again at At Length. At Length this season is supported in part by Town Hall Seattle. It's a great organization. If you're in Seattle, you should check it out. And if you're not, you can go to their website or subscribe to the podcast that they put out, all full of lectures from various scholars and authors and thinkers and musicians who come to Seattle and talk about their ideas before a live audience. We'll talk to you again. Thanks a lot for listening to At Length.